This morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And I remember back in the olden days, I mean when I was young, that Christmas was that time of year that we would just, as a kid, we would long for the day, right? We all had our family traditions, and it usually started bubbling to the surface after Thanksgiving, and the tree goes up, and you have the, the tree decorating night with your family. And then this sense of longing and anticipation begins, where it's each day, it's, it's closer. You feel it. You feel the energy. You start hearing rumors about what gifts you might or might not get. You start maybe seeing the gifts packaged and hidden in mom and dad's closets or underneath the bed or in the drawers. Not that you would go and snoop for any of them, but they're there and you're kind of feeling this sense. I remember as a kid just feeling this this sense and Christmas Eve was coming and I remember going to church and I remember uh, just the joy of coming home and opening stockings, which was our our tradition on Christmas Eve night and the, the hot chocolate and the donuts in the morning and that sense of joy when you wake up that morning, you run out and you see the tree and you now see all these surprise gifts uh, laying there. There's just joy that comes because finally Christmas Day is here. But I remember one of the favorite times of our Christmas morning was waiting for Grandma to come. And I remember sitting at the, 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 looking out the window, and at the time I was tall enough to kind of peer over the edge of the windowsill, but inevitably Grandma would come up with her rust orange Chevy Citation, She would prop open that hatchback and throw the broomstick in there because the hydraulic had already gone out. And it was like, uh, I don't even have words. We're running to the street because grandma's here and the offloading of all the gifts and the joy because now the center of the home begins uh, as grandma steps in. But those are great memories of anticipation and longing. But as a kid, those 25 days seemed like an eternity. This morning, we're going to be learning about people who have been waiting 400 years, 400 years before between the silence of Malachi and Gabriel's visit to John the Baptist's father, 400 years. And as we go into Christmas, I want you to just kind of sit on that for a second. No miracles, no message, no prophets. No new word, no movement of God in any way, shape, or form. 400 years of complete and dead divine silence. Now, the promises were still out there. And granted, the people who heard the promises from Isaiah were not alive still, so they had passed the promises down generation to generation. Now there's this longing of finally, maybe, the promises that were promised of old are going to come true. But they waited year after year decade after decade, century after century of silence. Now, we talked last week about uh, Amos, in Amos chapter 8, where it talks about the famine of God's word. Remember that? Let's just sit for a moment and think about what would, li- what would life be if we had no God movement? We had no miracle. We had no message. We had no word. We couldn't open up the word. We couldn't recall any sense of freshness. Only a promise looming out, hoping for it to be fulfilled. That's what the world was like. It was almost like a a cosmic holding of one's breath, waiting for God to move finally, that maybe someday soon that son of righteousness would rise with healings in his wings. 
that the branch of David would reign on his throne, that the God of Israel would somehow respond to the prayers of the people. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. But they sat in silence, waiting. Been reading this fantastic book uh, about biblical critical theory. But in the, uh, the, the book, the author is, is talking about this time period between Malachi and uh, the, the New Testament. Listen to how he describes this period. God's people are a small remnant of what, they, of what they once were. God's land is still split into the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and Jerusalem is a pale shadow of its former glory. As for God's blessing, none of the prophetic promises, hearts of flesh to replace the people's heart of stone, the law written on their hearts, no more mourning or pain, none of these have yet to be fulfilled. So the people limp along with a new rebuilt temple in the new reclaimed land, and they continue to wait. They wait for the new ruler to the wonderful counselor prophesied by Isaiah. They wait for the time when God himself will come to shepherd his sheep, as Ezekiel foretold. They wait for the coming of the suffering servant who will be pierced for their transgressions. They wait for the new city and the new temple whose foundation will be laid by God himself. They wait for God to bring back his people from the ends of the earth to the land that he gave to their fathers. They wait for the new covenant, the new relationship, and the new nation. From the moment of the last canonical Old Testament prophetic's final, prophet's final words, they continue their wait for a further 400 years. The Persian Empire falls. Greek becomes the common language of the Middle East. And Rome ruthlessly and efficiently drives its mighty empire deep into Asia at the point of the spear and the sword, swallowing up the tiny nation of Judah. And then, around the year 4 BC, the canonical silence is broken and the voice of the prophet is heard in Israel, crying out in the wilderness. And an angel from God visits a teenage Judean peasant girl in the quiet of her home with words that echo God's dealings with Noah and Abraham. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Just get a little emotional reading that. 400 years of God's silence broken by angelic visits. It's this sense of anticipation and longing and waiting that we want to stir up in ourselves during this Christmas season. Last week, we started this series called Songs for the Season, and we're looking at four pictures, four songs through the, the gospel of, of Luke primarily that highlight for us different aspects of the birth of Jesus. Last week, we started 700 years before Christ with the prophet Isaiah speaking about this one who would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He would be the one that would be our gloriousness. Remember from last week, he would pierce the gloom, the darkness and the despair, and he would penetrate it with life and with light and with peace and with glory. This morning, we're gonna look at a character by the name of Zechariah. Most of your Bibles might say Zacharias. He's the father of John the Baptist. And he becomes the next central character in this theme of God uh, bringing about the incarnation of Christ. Next week, as Pastor Bill mentioned, he'll pick up with, with Mary. And then on Christmas Eve morning, we will look at the angels and their angelic song in the hilltops of Bethlehem. Well, let's turn our attentions towards Luke chapter 1 in particular. In the opening paragraphs, we're introduced to some new characters, Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. 
Luke introduces them as there was a man named Zechariah. Now, this is how Luke introduces new people. And usually the new people he introduces are going to be important people. These two individuals, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are described as righteous, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They're exemplary people. But the next piece of information we get about them is important to the story. It's that they have no children because she was barren and they were old. They were past the age of having children. And normally in the Bible, if you hear a woman described as barren and past the age of birth, what's going to happen? She's going to have a baby and that baby is going to be super important. And that's what happens in this story. Zechariah is a priest. In fact, Elizabeth is in the line of Aaron. So she is in the lineage of priests herself. But Zechariah is picked by lottery to go and serve in the temple. He's one of perhaps 18,000 priests that would have been drawn and scheduled for once or twice a year to go to perform their religious duties in the the temple as, as prescribed. And in this particular situation, he was drawn by lot to not just serve in the temple, but actually go inside, not the Holy of Holies, but inside the inner tent in order to light the incense candles that are uh, reminders of God's ever presence, but also of the prayers of the people to the Father. And I try to imagine what it would have been like for Zechariah that morning. He was probably a little excited because this was maybe a once in a lifetime opportunity to step into this special chamber of the temple. And as he stepped in from the sunlight into the darkened room, I imagine it took a while for his eyes to, 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 to adjust to the darkness. And as he's trying to remember what his particular role was, he notices that he is not alone. In fact, there's an angel standing before him. Now, I don't know about you, but I would go straight panic. If I'm walking into a room that I'm pretty sure is, uh, is a solitary dark place and there's somebody already standing there, my adrenaline would pop, as no doubt Zacharias did. And this angel, his name is Gabriel, he speaks. And he says, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And I wonder if in that moment Zechariah said, yes. Finally, the 400 years of silence is broken. God is now sending messengers. He's sending a miracle. Zechariah knew, well, my, my wife can't have children. We're past that age. Gabriel says, your wife is going to have a child. His name is going to be John. And he will be the forerunner of the Messiah. He, he will prepare the way. And I have no doubt in my mind that Zechariah, because he knew the Old Testament, because he knew the prophecies of old, he was immediately just kind of filling his memory, his brain with with thoughts about all of these promises that are now going to be fulfilled, not just in the world, but in him and in his son. What an incredible moment of worship and praise. But at the same time, as any other human would be, he has a sense of doubt and concern and I can't figure this out. I can't put all these pieces together. And he questions Gabriel and Gabriel says, I'm going to give you a sign. The sign is you will not speak for nine months. And all of you women are saying, yes, that would be a miracle. (laughs) The men are thinking maybe the same. But Zechariah cannot speak, and no matter how much he tries, he can't get words out there. He has been divinely shut up, not just as a punishment, but as a sign that nine months later, your your lips will be loosed, your tongue will be able to speak and communicate. And Zechariah walks out of the tabernacle that day, 
silent. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows there's been a vision. Everybody knows that God has done something miraculous, but he can't articulate words. So for nine months, he's using a scratch pad to write out his words. He's trying to communicate in any way, shape, form, any way, shape, or form he can without using his words. Nine months. And just as Gabriel said, Elizabeth becomes pregnant. She carries her baby to term. And there, the Bible tells us that uh, Elizabeth has given birth and everybody crowds in to celebrate the birth of this late child, uh, this, this late life child. And Elizabeth says, his name will be John. And they say, uh, no, no, no. We, in our culture, we call them after the father. His name will be uh, Zechariah. No, he won't be Zechariah. He'll be John. Maybe a little bit of argument transpires. And Zechariah steps forward and he writes, his name is John. And immediately his mouth opens and the first words of his mouth are recorded for us in Luke chapter one and verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. He prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Father, I love the story. Your word is so powerful, so clear, so real, so close to us. We praise you, Father, for the fact that you are not silent now. We praise you for the fact, Lord, that you have delivered us, your son, that you have pierced the darkness with the birth of Jesus, and that because of his light, we have life and we have peace. I thank you, Father, that you have worked miraculously and strangely through individuals through time that didn't deserve the opportunity, but you, you, you spoke into their life and you spoke through their lives to us, and we thank you and praise you for that. I thank you for this passage and Father, all that it means to us. I pray that you would open our eyes to it this morning, that you would make clear what you have for us. That as we go from this place this morning, our lives might be changed because we come wanting that. We want to be changed by you. We want your spirit to speak to us. We want your word to be clear to us. We want our thinking to be adjusted and tweaked and, and conformed into your thoughts. I pray that you would go before us that you prepare us, that you teach us and challenge us that we might leave different than the way that we came in. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. The first words that come out of Zechariah's mouth are praise. And as we'll see, a heart that is rooted in a sense of appreciation will erupt with words of praise. I love the fact that Pastor Bill led us in that structured prayer. Think about something that you're thankful for and thank the Lord for that. Then turn to him and ask for a request. 
but a heart that is rooted in a sense of appreciation and, and a, an awareness of God's glory is going to erupt in praise automatically. Now, if you were quiet for nine months and you had the opportunity to speak for the first time, what would you say? I know some of you would say, get me Chick-fil-A. Four <laughs> breakfast biscuits, please. Some of you would say other things. You would complain about your voice. You would say, man, I need some water. I'm dying over here. I've, I've been wanting to say this ever since. But Zechariah burst forth into praise. And if you look at the whole, the whole song, there are really two sections. The first section is all about praise to God. It's all about the promises of God from old. It's all about how God has moved faithfully to satisfy our hearts with the promises that he is now fulfilling. The second half is really about a prophecy for his son in particular. And he turns his attention and his gaze to his boy who he's now holding in his arms. And he said, I have been told by an angel nine months ago that this is what your life is gonna be like. And now my boy, this is what you'll do. What an incredible moment, incredibly personal, incredibly powerful. And it's a message that ought to penetrate our hearts and our lives this morning. So let's look first at praising God for his promises. And I see several things in here that are, that are important. As we think about the fact that he erupted in praise, uh, again, it's, we're going to see that it's connected into a sense of appreciation. We're going to come back to that into some action steps at the end because of what I want in us is a sense of focused appreciation on God's promise and God's fulfillment of that. But we see three things here that, that Zechariah immediately begins with. He says, I praise God, I bless God that he has visited us. In a very similar way at a thousand times greater, I was thankful that my grandmother would drive around that corner each year, thankful that she would come and visit our home. With a greater sense of anticipation and a greater sense of joy, we should be thankful that the God of the universe condescended to us. He came down to us. He did not come out of silence and say, okay, you just got to be better. Just try harder, climb up that hill again, climb up that ladder, just get going and work at it. No, God pierced the darkness, the gloominess, the despair. He did that by sending his son in flesh. Zechariah begins by praising God that God has visited his people. God has rested upon his people. And it's tied up with this thought that God remembers his promises. If you go to the middle part of that passage, there's recollection on the holy prophets and what they said. The, the oath given to Abraham from generations earlier. God is not a God that is forgetful. And because I like making up words, God is a God that is faithful. He puts his face right on us. He gives attention to us, not individually all the time, but collectively to his people. God is not one that forgets and says, man, I know there's those people. God is faithful to put his face on his people. The full joy of his attention. Our God is faithful. He is not forgetful. And he has visited us. The psalmist says, when I consider the glory of the Lord, what am I? What is man that you would take thought of him? God thought 
about his creation when he satisfied his promises to us. And it begins with an angelic visit to a priest inside the tabernacle to say your son will be born and he will be not the Messiah himself. He will be the forerunner of that. I love how Paul describes this in Philippians chapter two. He speaks about Christ being in glory, emptying himself, taking on the form of a man, of a bondservant, and living a life on earth that he might be glorified by the Father and all things put under his feet. There's a big you there. Christ came down, became man, lived his life of faithful obedience, was exalted to the right hand, and all things were put in subjection to him. This is the big story that we're jumping in the middle of. It's a big story of anticipation. We talked about it last week. We're looking back to the day that Christ came first time. We're looking ahead to the time when Christ will come again. His first and his final visits are where we're stuck in the middle right now. And we should be stirring in our spirits. We should pray that God would stir in our spirits, that we would celebrate the past and we would long for the future, that we would long for that day that the Lord Jesus and when the Lord Jesus will burst through the sky. Zechariah praises God that he has visited us. But he has not only visited, he has redeemed us. It's a great picture in the Bible of purchase. In the Old Testament, oftentimes the redemption wording is tied up with the Exodus, that God redeemed his people out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. In the New Testament, it's a picture of being delivered or being purchased from uh, or out of the confines of sin. So we have this Old, Old Testament picture of bondage uh, escape. We have a New Testament picture of sin escape. But then Paul in Romans chapter eight, he looks ahead to a final redemption. And it's the redemption of our bodies when all of creation is restored to the way that God intended it. And we don't have time to talk about what the end times are gonna look like. It's a topic for another day. But there's a great promise still yet future that God will come and will redeem all of us from the confines of sin once and for all. And all of creation will rejoice over God, our Redeemer. It's interesting to me, kind of midway through this point, that, that Zechariah is talking as if these things have already happened. You notice that? Everything's past tense. He has visited us. He has redeemed us. In a second, we'll see he has delivered us. But it's all past tense. It's, it's as if Zechariah is standing in the future looking back at himself. And I wonder if this is a posture we should try to develop in our lives. That we are standing past the deliverance of God, looking back on the life that he has already changed. Zechariah kind of models this for us in some way, shape, or form, but it's summed up in a word that I've talked about before and others have too, and that is hope. Hope is a decision to wait for the promise of God to be fulfilled. And it's a waiting that is not passive, it's active. And it's a, a, a forward thinkingness because God will satisfy his promises. It's not just that God might, or he might consider it for future reference. No, God will satisfy his promises. He will fulfill them in his time, in his way. And hope is that sense of waiting for that to come. Zechariah praises God that he has visited us, 
that he has redeemed us and that he has delivered us. He has delivered us from our enemies, he says. He has delivered us from our haters, he says. He delivers us with a, with a powerful movement of his hand. The, the phrase, he lift up a horn of salvation is a reference to power and to strength and to identity. God has moved in power. He has moved with purpose. He has moved to satisfy his promise and he has moved to protect his people all wrapped up in this deliverance language, which is so powerful for us. I've been thinking lately about what happens when a kingdom is delivered from its enemies. When a king, a stronger king with his army comes into a land to take over, he's going to take out the authorities, but he's not gonna leave that community without guidance, right? He's going to establish his, new, his own rules, his own laws, his own way of living, his own principles of, 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 of politic. And God has done this very same thing for his people. He delivered them mightily out of the book of Exodus, and he established his law at Mount Sinai. He has given guidance and direction to the way his people ought to live. And Jesus has done the same. He has delivered us from the bondage of sin, and he has established a new way of life, the kingdom life a life that you've heard Pastor Bill talk about for years. It's a life that is guiding, a guiding principle is Christ-likeness, something that all of us are wanting to be uh, more in tune to, I trust. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. We have not been delivered to nothing. We have been delivered to his kingdom and the branch of David the great king of Israel, the Lord Jesus is reigning in and through us as his people. The 400 years of silence were broken by an angel speaking to a man. Nine months later, nine months of waiting, the silence was erupted and broken by the words of praise of God's promise, his faithfulness, his goodness to visit his people, to redeem his people, to deliver his people. And Zechariah goes on and speaks about his son, John, whom we know as John the Baptist. Pick up in verse 76. And you, child, you'll be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. I love that. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light, think of Isaiah, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I think of myself, why did Zechariah pick these words? Where'd they come from? Did he just say, as a father, I've got a goal for my child and I'm going to declare this? No. Look back earlier in chapter 1. When Gabriel visits uh, Zechariah in, uh, pick up in uh, 13. 
says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, reference back to Malachi, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for the Lord, for the Lord's return or for the Lord's coming. I bet Zechariah was chewing on those words. Now, he probably did not turn on his cell phone recorder to get Gabriel's message to him in, in original, but no doubt for nine months he was chewing over, what does this mean? He talked about Elijah. He talked about the, the, the preparing the way. He, and all of these prophecies are percolating through his brain as he's trying to make sense of what's actually happening in his life and the life of his son. And these words now erupt onto the page for us. We see the role of John as declaring God's promise, God's promise delivered. And in three ways. First, we see John would prepare the way. This boy would grow up to be the forerunner promised by Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, a passage that's quoted in, John, in Luke chapter 3, that this one would be the forerunner to set the way for the Messiah. He would not be the Messiah. In fact, John would later say that uh, he has sandals I'm unworthy to tie. He's the one that as he's baptizing, looks up and he sees Jesus and he says, behold, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's this John that is setting the way for Messiah to come. He's preparing the ground for the Messiah to come, but he is not the Messiah himself. I was one time uh, in a wedding. I wasn't officiating the wedding. I was one of the, the wedding party members. And some of you maybe have seen this practice in a wedding ceremony, but uh, the music starts and everybody sits and the, the, uh, the procession happens with all of the groomsmen and the bridesmaid and the pastor's there and the groom's there and, uh, and the, uh, the flower girl comes down and, and drops the flowers and she actually made it all the way to the front, which was miraculous. And she goes and sits down and then the doors close and everybody just kind of waits for a moment because we know what's coming next. But instead of the bride coming out, a little boy comes out with a bell and he stands at the back door. All the door, all the, the eyes are on him and he starts ringing. Here comes the bride. Here comes the bride. And he's walking down the aisle yelling, here comes the bride. Here comes the bride. And everybody's giggling, but there's a sense of anticipation because as soon as he gets to the front, the doors open, the beautiful bride walks in and comes down and the ceremony starts. That boy ringing the bell is what John played. That was the role John played. Here comes the king. Here comes the Messiah. Here comes the promise. Here comes the one we've been waiting for. 400 years you've been waiting and he's coming. When was he coming? He was coming 30 years later. John had to grow up. Jesus had to grow up. John had to be old enough to begin a ministry publicly, and he did. And he began to cry out, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was preparing the way for Messiah. So when Messiah bursts onto the scene, the people would be waiting in anticipation just like that crowd was waiting for the bride to open the door. John had a very specific role to play and it was to prepare the way. But he also had a role to play to declare 
to the people, give them knowledge of what they needed to know before Jesus burst onto the scene. Zechariah speaks to his son and he says, um, did I switch passages? Just hold on one second. I'm starting to go ahead to Pastor Bill's message from next week. Wrong text. <laughs> you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, to give knowledge to the people about salvation, but particularly about the forgiveness of their sins, that there needed to be a repenting and a returning. We'd learn about that if we were studying the book of Acts right now that the call was repent and come back to the Lord. Why? Because Messiah is coming. The bridegroom is coming and his people need to be ready for him. This was John's job. And he declared it mightily. He declared it powerfully. He de declared it courageously. He declared it in such a way, in fact, that he was eventually killed for it, beheaded. John the Baptist declared, prepared the way for the Messiah. He declared the way for Messiah, but he did not do anything to secure anything about our salvation. That was Jesus's job. Jesus came on the scenes to secure the salvation, to satisfy the promise that had been given 400 plus years before. Jesus would be the one that would satisfy all of those longings. And we are here this morning. Why? Because we believe this to be true. We believe that Jesus is that one that satisfied the promises. We have chosen to believe that it was not any number of religions that are out there. We are here today because we believe that it's Jesus. He is the king that has come. He is the king that has satisfied the promises. He is the one that has delivered his people from their sins. He is the one that is the light in the darkness. He is the one that the, is the gloriousness in the midst of the gloom. He is the one that brings gladness to our hearts. He is the one that guides and directs us. And we believe that and we celebrate it and we long for the day that he would come again. And I wonder if we long for it. We celebrate it, we sing it, we, we praise God for it, but do we long for it? Zechariah ends with a great phrase. He says, to guide our feet into the way of peace. He speaks about darkness before that, which echoes where we were last week in Isaiah chapter 9. It echoes Isaiah 59 and 60. If you have time to read those two chapters this week, it would be helpful for you to kind of get context. But there's darkness spiritually that the light penetrates. And once the light penetrates it, then you can walk carefully. And he talks about peace being the experience of those that are walking in the light of the Lord. Now, I don't believe this is external peace. We seem to be obsessed and consumed as a culture about experiencing safety and peace. But I think what's happening in the, in the life of a believer is an internal peace that gives a sense of calm in the midst of storm. So that the Prince of Peace resides in us and gives us a sense of rest. We can and just be. Paul writes about condemnation no longer being a factor with the Lord so that we have peace. We have peace with him. And if we have peace with God, then all is at peace. And that's what Jesus delivered. That's what John the Baptist prepared. And so I want to ask this question that I hope to think through every week in this season. What would this song have us do right now? What would this song have us do in our lives right now? And I can think of three things. Now, I think if we were just quiet for a moment, we may already have had something stirring in our minds to cause us to do something. 
Maybe there's some action, some response, some behavior change that you need to go through. You may be working that already in your heart. I don't want to distract you from that, but I want to give you a couple thoughts. First, we need to appreciate God's promise. This word appreciation is kind of an interesting one because I think it's lost some of the power in, in uh, our hearts because usually appreciation is attached to appreciation dinner or appreciation banquet or appreciation event or appreciation card. And normally those are considered kind of formalities where at some point somebody has to stand up and has to say some nice things. Why? Because it's an appreciation dinner. That's what you do. But what appreciation is, is inside a sense of, uh, of joy and thankfulness and gratitude for something either you've received or you've experienced. I want, to, I want to stir in us a sense of appreciation for God's promise. That God had promised and he delivered. And God is promising and he will deliver. And I want to stir in us a sense of appreciation for that. And what does appreciation do? Does, appreciation certainly makes us want to say something, right? When you appreciate someone, you're going, to, you're going to go to them and express something. But appreciation also changes behavior. When you have a sense of appreciation for, for someone or an event or a situation or something you have, you will treat it differently. You will treat them differently. You will interact differently. Your behavior will change because of that sense of appreciation that is stirring up in your spirit. I want us to develop an appreciation for God's promise. This song of Zechariah is so clear on the, the goodness and the appreciative, I was gonna to try to make up another word, but it didn't work. Appreciate the, the appreciation that we have for God for all the great things that he has done for us. The Lord was mindful of us. God remembered his promise and he looked to us. He turned his face towards us. He is a mindful God. He is a faithful God. Because of his tender mercy, he is a merciful God. God delivers his promises purposefully. He is a purposeful God. He does it despite distractions. He's an intentional God. He is an able God. He is a God that is willing and able to deliver on all of his promises, not just some of them. So we can cling to that. We can foster a sense of appreciation in our spirits and we can, and we can respond appropriately. We need to be appreciative of the promises of God. We also need to communicate the promise of God. We talked earlier about inviting somebody to up on the rooftop. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a trial of something maybe greater, meaning the process of stepping out of your comfort zone and inviting somebody to come to an event at church is, is a trial for something that might be a little bit more challenging or a little bit more sacrificing in the future. But we need, like John, to be forerunners of the coming Messiah. Yes, we're looking back to celebrate, but we're also looking forward to a return. And we need to be people, like John, who are proclaiming the promise of God. What is the promise? The promise is if you believe in Jesus, if you repent of your sins, you will be made right with God and you will be reconciled to the Father. And there's no greater joy, there's no greater source of life, there's no greater source of peace, there's no greater source of happiness in the world than being reconciled to the God who made you. And you then can begin to live a life that he has designed us to live. Again, God has not saved us from sin to nothing. He has saved us from condemnation to restoration. 
He is making all things right for his glory. And we can celebrate that and we can talk about it. So I encourage you each of this, this week, go back to that moment where Pastor Bill asked us to think about something we're grateful for. Take that thing, add to it, and tell somebody about it this week. Tell some random person about it. While you're waiting in that long line at the store or you're, you're, whatever you're doing, talk about it. Just say, hey, you know what? I was thinking this week, I'm really appreciative that I, um, that I did this, that I have this, that man, I'm appreciative for my family, my, my wife, my house, my whatever. I'm appreciative for the God who made me. I'm appreciative for Jesus. I'm appreciative for the Christmas season. Express it in some way, shape, or form. If we really do believe that we have moved from gloominess to gloriousness, we should talk about it, right? It should be something that is ready on our lips. The last thing I see here, and it's in a series of so that phrases, I see that we need to submit to God's promises. God did not save us to nothing. God saved us to a new kingdom. And in that kingdom, we are expected to live a certain way and submit ourselves to God's way. Listen to what Zechariah says in the middle, verse 73. Let's jump back again a little earlier than that. He spoke by the holy prophets that, or verse 71, so that we should be saved from our enemies, praise God. And so that we should be saved from the hand of all who hate us, praise God. To show the mercy promised to our fathers. He is doing this to show his mercy that the fathers promised to remember his holy covenant to us, the oath that he swore to Abraham, to grant us, verse 74, so that we, so that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might what? Might enjoy freedom without any rules. That we might enjoy life without any restraints that we might be able to walk boldly with nothing before us. No, that we might serve him, serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God has called us to submit to him. I've been delivered, yes, but I've been delivered to a great king who loves me, who guides me, who leads me in the way, with the way of peace. He's given light to my path. Not just this day, not just this week, not just this season, but all of our days. Can we grow in our sense of appreciation? Can we talk about that appreciation? Can we walk in that appreciation? This song of Zechariah calls us to do those things. Let's try to go and be like him this week. Let's pray.